This is the Alpha Human Podcast, and I am your host, Lawrence Rosenberg. Our guest today is Mike Sorelli. Mike is a retired U.S. Navy SEAL who served 15 years as an officer in the SEAL teams and five years in the U.S. Marine Corps as a recon Marine and scout sniper. Mike served in SEAL Team 3, Task Unit Bruiser, alongside extreme ownership authors Jocko Willink and Leif Babin, where he led major combat operations, including playing a pivotal role in the Battle of Ramadi and leading historic combat operations in Sadr City. And he is the recipient of the Silver Star, six Bronze Stars, two Defense Meritorious Service Medals, and a Purple Heart. Following his return from combat, Mike assumed duties as the primary leadership instructor for all officers graduating from the SEAL training pipeline. Mike is also a co-founder, along with Jocko Willink and Leif Babin, of EF Overwatch, an executive search firm specializing in the recruiting, training, and placement of U.S. Special Operations Forces veterans with companies that are seeking leaders. He's also a leadership instructor and strategic advisor for Echelon Front. He's the founder of the Vetted Foundation, a transition program that identifies and prepares top military talent for industry placement. And he is the author, along with his EF Overwatch co-managing partner, George Randall, of the book, The Talent War, How Special Operations and Great Organizations Win on Talent. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. What an honor to be here. Well, it's, a, it's an honor to have you uh, on the show. I've got to tell you, uh, besides your uh, incredibly rich uh, and interesting background in special operations, uh, the work you're currently doing uh, with uh, executive search and also taking the, the, the incredible leaders that we have in the military and helping them transition out into a successful civilian career, I mean, that's phenomenal because there is so much talent that is kind of, it's buried almost in, in a place where, I mean, you have to, have to be crazy not to look, which is special operations. And you're bringing some of the, the great talent from there and helping them transition into the corporate world where we can sorely use it. And then your book, I got to tell you, your book, The Talent War. My God, I read that book and I just have to say, from someone who has been in uh, corporate America, uh, also uh, overseas uh, in, uh, in the UK for 25 years total in working in corporations, large and small, what you talk about in that book about the talent war itself, why it's a war, your greatest asset being people and, and really what it takes to develop and, and, and attain and attract great talent is, I, I, I got to tell you, it's so refreshing to hear it coming from someone who's been outside the corporate world and then coming and done it right. I got to say, there's so much practical, intelligent strategy that any corporation that reads this book, they should have their entire human resources team, their entire leadership team because they need to understand it as well. Read your book, The Talent War, because if they do, they're going to truly understand what it takes to attract talent, 
which is probably their biggest problem, and then keep that talent, develop that talent and keep that talent. I got to say, it's a fantastic book. It doesn't talk in platitudes. It speaks truth with practical, practical strategies that any company can use as a blueprint to have an incredible, incredible talent attraction program. I'm psyched to use it myself. Uh, so thanks for being on the show. It's an honor. You just gave us the uh, the best testimonial I've ever heard. We're going to chop that up and, <laughs> and get it out of the winds. Mm. You, you, you've written books. You, you know, the thing is, at the end of the day, this is my first book. It may be my last. But man, <laughs> to put yourself out there. And, you know, I kept looking at George and, and our other, uh, our, our main contributor, Dr. Josh Cotton. And I'm like, I just don't know if this is good. I, I don't know if this is good. And, and I think you, you start to hate your own book yeah. through the, uh, the process. You do. <laughs> no, no doubt about it. it. Yeah. It's like listening to your own voice. Uh, yeah, I, I hate that. Yes. Right. I, you know, I, I can't watch, you know, I cannot watch any of the interviews that I do. Uh, but um, the, 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 the truth is that you can, you can tell that you didn't just write a book. What you did was transfer a bona fide strategy, a bona fide plan, a bona fide blueprint that has allowed special ops to become the premier force that it is when it comes to attracting and developing and retaining talent until at some point, I guess, you know, for a lot of guys, they just get injured and they, they have to go out. But I'm, I'm sure you guys um, never want to leave. I mean, honestly, and you can see and another thing you talk about in the book, we'll get to it. I don't want to give it all away, but you also talk about you're a Navy SEAL for life. You're a Marine for life. You're branded. Right. It's, you know, who walks away from, you know, from a company these days and thinks of themselves as, you know, an IB. The, I'm IBM through and through, even though you're not an IBM anymore. I, you know, it doesn't happen anymore. So anyway, I, I, I want to start with getting into what, you know, a little bit about your background, and then we're going to get into the book because there's so much cool stuff to talk about there. But I want to talk about your background. It's, ter- it's, it's, it's incredibly impressive. Um, you started out in the Marines. What motivated you to join the Marines. Let's start there. What was your inspiration? What got you into the Marines? So, you know, I didn't come from a, uh, a military lineage. Um, of course, my grandfather had served in, in the military they, during the World War II. Almost everyone's grandfather did. Um, and I grew up in San Francisco, which isn't exactly a hotbed uh, <laughs> of, of military recruitment, uh, especially these days. But, um, you know, I had this, this, this feeling that it's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't explain it. My father explained it uh, better, but and I'll get to that later. But what pushed me over the edge was the same thing about talent that, that a lot of companies don't understand, that your brand is your people. It's when you put them, when they leave work, are they representing the organization in such a way that somebody sees them and says, wow, I've got to be part of that organization. And for me, uh, I don't want to utilize his full name, but he was a staff sergeant in the Marine Corps. His name was Ben. And, uh, you know, at age 18, uh, you know, 17, 18, I met this guy, Force Recon, which is the Marine Con- you know, back then it was the, uh, the Marines version of the, the top special forces. And everything about this individual just ex- exudes the alpha human being. He was humbly confident. He was articulate. He was intelligent, highly respectful 
uh, to other people. You know, he didn't need to exact his ego uh, on anyone. And as a 18 year old, I'm like, dude, I, I, I don't, I, I can't stand next to this guy. So I've got to give it a shot because I got to see if I can be part of this organization. And actually he helped me enlist in the Marine Corps uh, about a year later. And uh, I did, I made it into the recon community, loved it, became a scout sniper. And uh, you know, it, it was that one leader. And a lot of people say you choose a boss, you don't choose a job. Mm. It was that one leader that pushed me to join an organization because of the very fabric of who they were. Wow. And, and just for the uninitiated, how does uh, Marine Recon, Scout Sniper, how, do, how does that differ from the rest of the Marines? Yeah, so the Marine Corps, when they stood up uh, organization, the, the military, Department of Defense, stood up uh, Special Operations Command, or known as SOCOM, mm-hmm. the Marine Corps initially said, we don't want to be a part of it. Uh, the commandant of the Marine Corps w- was a gentleman named Al Gray at the time. And he said, every Marine is special. We don't need to be a part of this organization. Well, while I understand his sentiment, and that's, a, that's pride in your organization and your people, mm-hmm. uh, they started to lose out on funding and they weren't the primary uh, force for, uh, for, for missions. It would go to the Navy SEALs, it would go to the Green Berets, it would go to Air Force Special Operations. Um, and eventually the Marine Corps in 2005, 2004, 2005, stood up a test element um, who, who led it was a guy named Craig Kaczynski, who is in, uh, just amazing. He was a force recon legend. Uh, I work with him now on something called the Talent War Group that's, that's coming out on uh, November 9th. But okay. um, it was the, it was the, 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 the way to put it is it was the Marine Corps' version of the Navy SEALs. And uh, since the Marine Corps wasn't part of SOCOM, they completely controlled the future, the destiny uh, of Force Recon. It wasn't part of a joint, uh, a sort of joint command where they, they lost control of their own forces. Gotcha, gotcha. And so, I mean, what a fraternity. Um, but then you make uh, the transition to the Navy SEAL. So how does, so how does that happen? What leads to that? So funny enough, uh, where most recon Marines uh, go to try out to become a recon Marine is something called the basic reconnaissance course, BRC. There's also one on the, uh, the, the the East coast, but since I was a West coast Marine, I went to that, that schoolhouse on Coronado, California. Well, where is basic uh, underwater demolition school or SEAL training? It's also in Coronado. And you know, you saw those guys, uh, and you know who they were and, you know, you know, statistically they were older, uh, you know, more intelligent, more athletic. They had all the funding. They were a true talent magnet, even more so than the recon community. I mean, they had Olympic athletes trying to become Navy SEALs. They had NCAA division one athletes trying to become Navy SEALs. And after I worked with them for a bit and the fact that they were part of SOCOM, and if there was a mission that came down the pipe, they usually got it. I'm like, okay, hey, you know what? Uh, I heard it was the, the toughest training in, in the world. I've done this recon thing. I, I love my brothers, but that, 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 that challenge is right over there. And if I don't take it, I think I'm going to regret it. Um, I think I have what it takes. And ultimately I made the leap. You know, my guiding principle going through SEAL training was one thing. I was not going to embarrass the Marine recon community. Mm. I was going to actually... Uh, I was going to, you know, actually show the, the SEAL community uh, the caliber coming out of the, uh, the recon community. And, and I finished what they call the firing gut uh, recipient 
of my basic underwater demolition uh, SEAL training class. And that the, what that honor is, is they asked the students, who would you most want to go to war with? And their answer was, uh, was Mike Sorelli. And so cool. that's when I knew I'd sort of upheld the reputation of the recon community when I, uh, I went over there. So now you're in, now you're in the SEALs and uh, you end up in uh, SEAL Team 3 uh, for some time. And uh, Task Force Bruiser, which is uh, famous or infamous, anywhere you want to look at it, uh, within the SEAL community, Task Force Bruiser also has a brand, right? I mean, it, it, they have it, they have Task Force Bruiser and SEAL Team 3 has its own brand within the SEAL community. It's, it's really amazing. Um, no doubt due to the leadership and the, and the way you guys approached. Um, how did that come about? Because, you know, no one can name any, you know, really it's it, when you, when you talk about the SEALs, you understand there's different SEAL teams, but for some reason, SEAL team three task force bruiser stands out. How, how does that happen? So again, you, you know, this isn't, uh, you know, when we talked about the book, you said it's practical. It doesn't speak in platitudes. It's a framework. Mm -hmm. it, it's not, it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that a leader sets the tone. The leader sets the tone. Can you overcome bad leadership? Yes, you absolutely can. But when you have phenomenal leadership that sets the tone, in this case, it was Jocko Willink. And, you know, Jocko is a brother. He's also a mentor. Um, he helped me sort of salvage my, my, my SEAL career because I ended up in a bad incident pretty uh, shortly after uh, basic underwater demolition school or training. Um, but he sort of reinforced day one what the mantra was within Tasking a Bruiser. And it was the infancy of extreme ownership. And... When he initially sort of told it to me, it didn't make sense because he said everyone leads. And when he said that, I thought too many chiefs, not enough, not enough Indians. Hey, that, that philosophy sounds right. awful. That sounds horrible. Whoever taught <laughs> you. And um, he explained it. He's like, no, he's like, as a leader, you want all your people leading at every level in the organization, which is to say you want them taking ownership at their respectable, uh, their respective level of the organization. You want them owning their roles and responsibilities. And when at, we can do that at every single level of the organization and everyone is sharing in ownership, which means they're attacking the problems. They're not pointing fingers or casting blame. When a problem happens, we just attack it together. We solve it and we move on and we learn. And that's what made Tasking a Bruiser stand out. But, you know, make no qualms, you know, have no qualms about it. It was Jocko Willems. And I felt very fortunate early in my SEAL career to have served with a, uh, a leader uh, like that. And the reason he has such a following is because he is legitimate. You know, there's a lot of people on social media that just have no credibility whatsoever and nobody should be listening to them. That's the <laughs> fact. This is the Dunning-Kruger effect. Just because somebody speaks with a lot of confidence does not mean that they're high in knowledge and, and experience. He is. And, and that's why people see it is he's genuine. He lives what he says he's going to do. Now, he mentored and coached a lot of the young SEALs that went on to have amazing uh, careers. One, Dr. Johnny Kim, who's a NASA astronaut. He was a Silver, silver Star recipient in, in the Battle of Ramadi. He and I went to BUDS together, uh, Harvard-educated doctor, and then NASA astronaut, <laughs> all by the age of 34. Michael Montour, who uh, unfortunately jumped on a grenade three feet for me to save my life and the life of another SEAL who's three feet on his other side. Uh, who's you know, received the, uh, the Medal of Honor, uh, Leif Babin, the other co-author uh, of uh, Extreme Ownership. 
there are so many guys I can talk about and go down the list. And if there were 40 of us, I came in right around number 40. And guess what? I'm proud to have even been part of that. <laughs> uh, because they're all rock stars. And when you surround yourself by rock stars, uh, you, you, you sort of absorb uh, mm. or, you know, you either raise your, your level of performance or you're going to be out. Um, and it did go on, and, and, and I don't want to misquote here. It went on to be the most decorated special operations task unit of the uh, the Iraq War, and um, yeah, that was my second deployment out of eleven in the SEAL teams. And I, yes. I, I consider myself fortunate in that regard that I saw what right looks like. Yeah, very for a very fortunate because that would that then set the tone really for the rest of your career. And clearly it's still in your blood uh, and it's continuing to, to make and mold, not just you, but, but those around you now and those that you work with and, uh, and certainly that uh, you help and coach and train and develop, um, which is interesting because, uh, and you, know, you talk about these things in the book. It, you know, what I love about the book as well is that in the talent war, you, ex you, you, you extrapolate a lot of great knowledge from, from special operations and how it relates to talent in the business world, but you, you bring in the stories, the stories that um, actually make it meaningful, what you personally went through, what others went through. Um, so you mention in the book that you get, um, you, you get the order if I'm saying it correctly, but you get the order to, to head up training. Um, so you, you take Leif Babin's place in training the, uh, the, the SEAL team officers in, in, that are coming up in the pipeline, uh, which initially you didn't really want to do, but it turned out to, to be a blessing in disguise and be a great opportunity. You, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So coming off my third deployment, which I'd just gotten back from the Battle of Sadr City in 2008, um, I thought I was going to get a platoon commander position, which means uh, similar to Leif Babin, he was a platoon commander under Jocko. Mm -hmm. I would get 16 SEALs and I would lead them in, into combat. And, you know, I'm not, it, it, this is just, I mean, it's the facts. I had more combat experience than about 99.9% .9 of my peers and, and I had performed in, in combat. So, the, you, you know, you, you have a great salesman, what are you going to do? You, you're you're going to continue to put them towards the front. Uh, that's, that's what the conventional train of thought is. Right. But um, they said, no, you, you're actually going to go replace Leif Babin as the junior officer training course, what we call Jotsi. And I was going to be the Jotsi director. Okay. And what that is, is after the, the, the officers who make it through the initial SEAL training that show that they have the, the attributes and the characteristics that we're looking for, and they made it through Hell Week, I'm sort of their uh, last line of professional development before they go to a SEAL team to start leading SEALs into combat. And that wasn't an easy pill to swallow because my peers are now going to take platoons mm -hmm. to Afghanistan and Iraq, and I've got to stay in the United States. And, um, you know, even though, uh, you know, leaders explained it, they said, hey, Mike, yeah, you, we're not saying you're, you're not good on the battlefield. You, you've proven uh, you, you're highly competent. What we need you to do is train the next generation. We need you to train 10 more of you because that has an exponential effect on the, uh, the community. And even though it was explained, they gave, they told me why mm -hmm. Did you think I accepted that at, you know, what was I 29, 30 years old. I still went around the corner after I left the office and said, you know, screw those guys and curse them to, uh, to help. <laughs> um, and then 
uh, you know, Leif really did a great turnover. And as I got into it and I started training these young officers, they were like sponges. They were so eager to get onto the battlefield and they were so eager to, to just suck whatever knowledge they could from you uh, in order to, to, to be successful on the battlefield. And, and the gravity of that uh, really started to hit home for me. And it turned out to be one of the most rewarding tours. And I still get emails from those guys now who are, some of them are gearing up to be SEAL team commanders saying, hey, Mike, thank you for, for what you did in Jossie. Thanks for putting all the time. Because I, I went, I mean, I kept those guys late. I, I, I ran a very tight, tight uh, ship. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to make sure I was doing my job and setting them up for success. And then, you know, even when I led that and went on to Naval Special Warfare Development Group, where I deployed just nonstop, and I was, you know, what we, we would call a, a troop commander, I would still, we, we'd get young SEAL officers that would augment us on deployments. I would take time if we weren't going on a mission to pull them aside and run them through training for two to three hours. Some of them didn't appreciate it at the time, but later when they would think about it, they would contact me. Um, you know, funny enough, and I don't want to monopolize the time here. Uh, I had a young Marine officer mm-hmm. on one of my last appointments that got uh, assigned to me by a MU commander. A MU commander is a, a Marine colonel, and we were working together on a specific mission. He said, Mike, I'd love to have eyes and ears inside your, your, your task force. And I said, absolutely, sir. And he would help with operations. And the kid showed up and he was just wicked smart, mm. wicked smart for his own to, you know, own good was, was everything was a comedy to him. Everything was a snide comment. And I sort of snapped him too and explained how serious the, the ramifications of what we were doing and that there wasn't, a, you know, it wasn't the time for snide comments. And over the next three months, I put a lot of time into this kid. Funny enough, I eventually get out of the military. This is like three or four years later and I'm in a dark place because I'm leaving the military and I'm, I'm I don't want to say identity crisis, but everything's starting to percolate from all the, all the, all the seal of the teammates I'd lost and I wasn't dealing with it well. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I receive a letter from this individual. He was now a captain in the Marine Corps. His name was Jimmy. So I, I, I call it a letter from Jimmy and I kept it. And he talked about how I put so much time into him, how I coached him and mentored him how I brought a seriousness to him that he carried with him for the remainder of his career in combat. And he had written that letter now an FBI agent uh, to just tell me how much, you know, those three months mattered. That's why I'm so passionate about this, this thing called talent. Cause Hey, first off, this book is about getting good talent in the door. There is going to be a second book. That's about managing that talent. That's about coaching and developing that talent, which is equally as important, but um, if you do it, that's the legacy of your leadership is when you leave an organization, you've trained your people so well that the, the, the organization continues to accelerate without you. Yeah, that's powerful. And the, and that kind of payoff, that kind of reward, getting a letter like that. I mean, there's no money in the world that can, can replace that kind of accolade. So, I mean, that's, that's very strong. Um, so let's, okay, perfect segue. Let's now get into the talent war. Um, let's get into the book because, um, you know, you wrote this, you wrote this book and, you know, we're skipping over some stuff, obviously, but um, leadership in, instructor with Echelon Front, which is uh, Jocko's uh, leadership uh, coaching company. 
you then found, uh, you then, you, you then started up, uh, EF Overwatch. Um, what, so let's actually just touch on that for a minute and then get into the book. So, and I know I mentioned it in, in the intro, what you do there, but if you could just give us a, a sum up of what you've been doing both with echelon front and then, uh, echelon front overwatch. So echelon front here, here's, here's Jocko's goal. And when Jocko says he's going to accomplish uh, something, you, you better bet he's, he's going to find a way to win. Um, he wants to make Echelon Front the number one leadership consulting firm in the world. And I'd say he, he's definitely making strides in that direction. We come into companies and we teach the one thing that, 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 that they can't teach, leadership, is how to take a group of wildly different personalities, uh, all from, from different states, uh, different creeds, sexes, uh, political beliefs, and orient them in a direction towards a common goal. Explain what they're doing, why they're, they're, they're doing the things that they're doing to achieve that goal, and then ultimately delivering results, uh, which means building an organization that wins. And that's the only matter. It, you know, we don't start businesses to, to create a great culture yet lose. The, mm. the purpose of business is to make money. And you want to build a winning organization that wants to make money, which means the organization is going to be around. So that's been great. Well, when I came on board, I built something called the Vetted Foundation with the help with, uh, of some admirals and generals. And Huffington Post hailed it as potentially revolutionizing the way that, that veterans exit the military. It failed because of political purposes, but, but that's on me. I didn't understand the political layout. So when it failed, I came to Jocko and Leif and I said, hey, listen, I think I can build an executive search arm of echelon front because the number one question they got from leaders was where can we find like 10 more of you guys? I want 10 more salespeople with the default aggressive nature um, that, that know how to build coalitions and relationships. And their answer was, uh, we don't know. Well, I did. And um, we, we stood up EF Overwatch. And I'll tell you what, as I'm going through my MBA, as I'm trying to figure out after 20 years in the military, what I want to do, Mm -hmm. It wasn't selling software. It wasn't selling hardware, which for some people, they love that. It wasn't building a new technology. How could I do good? How could I do right by my brothers and sisters in arms who I watched, uh, you know, display selfless valor in ingenuity in, in adaptation and innovation at levels I've never seen on a nightly basis on the battlefield? How could I do right by the men and women who I knew were exceptional talent while making money? And that's ultimately what EF Overwatch is. is yes, we, we, we do well for ourselves because we're placing serious leaders into management positions in small to mid-sized businesses. That's our focus. I don't go after the Fortune 500 because usually their HR pro processes as written in the book are, yeah. they're, they're difficult to deal with. They're mm -hmm. ingrained in their processes. They think they usually have it figured out because they're multi-million dollar organizations. Just because you're multi-million dollar organizations does not mean you have the talent piece figured out. It doesn't. And so that's why I focus on the backbone of American, uh, of the American economy, small to mid-sized businesses, leaders that put a precedence on leadership over industry experience. Excellent. Excellent. Um, what a great way to bridge what you were doing with what you're doing now and making a difference while doing it. I mean, you know, you could sell software all day long, uh, but you know, this, this is, uh, you know, this is powerful stuff, what you're doing for a community that has so much talent that is not, it's not being tapped as nearly as much as it should. So, okay. So let's get into the talent war. Let's get into it, man. I'm going to, so 
Let me quote from the book. Of 800 CEOs polled in 2019, the overwhelming majority of those, of, of those CEOs, uh, sorry, apologize. Of 800 CEOs polled in 2019, the overwhelming majority of them cited the ability to attract and retain quality workers as their top concern, okay? So here, here, here's what you say in the book. In business as in the military, the only competitive advantage you can hope to achieve and maintain is your human capital. Nothing is as important to your company's success as your people, not your product, not your service, your people. It's not what you sell that determines if your organization will be great. It's who you have doing it. Now, despite knowing this, Mike, or at least you know, saying that people are important, the vast majority of companies fail to attract and select quality people. Why is that? So here you have a kid that, that was actually, so I was born and raised in the heart of Silicon Valley, Palo Alto, born at Stanford Hospital. And okay. so I had the pleasure of watching my dad build a, his own little marketing and advertising agency uh, in the heart of Palo Alto. I, you know, Silicon Valley growing uh, around me. And, and I was enamored as a kid. You know, I was fortunate to, to see the evolution uh, of Silicon Valley. And then I go into the military, which I had no knowledge about other than watching movies in this one staff sergeant that I met. And as you're going through it, and, you know, I grew up in a Jesuit uh, sort of educated family. Okay. We all went to uh, parochial school and then went to Jesuit high school preparatory. And, and um you know, they, they, the, the Jesuits try to teach leadership. They try to teach uh, ethics and, and values. But then I get to the military and, and the Marine Corps boot camp, three months, 24-7. It, it's indoctrinization. It's cultural assimilation. But as they're teaching leadership, and, and I'm ready, re remembering back to playing sports and the coaches just never articulated that way, I started to realize that, you know, the military, yes, they're, they're trained in the art of war. But what it really is, is a leadership development program. And it's not only a leadership development program, it's the world's preeminent leadership development program. I not only got to go through Marine Corps boot camp and learn about leadership, I then went to Marine OCS. I then went to SEAL training. I then went through an assessment selection for, for tier one. In each block in, in my 20 years, I'm continually getting coached and mentored in, in leadership. And so when you come out of an organization that puts a precedence on knowledge and leadership, and you step into the, uh, the, the, the business world, you, you realize real quickly. And my, my, my step into the business world was the full-time MBA program at UT, uh, Texas McCombs. And, you know, they didn't really have a great leadership curriculum. And they're, 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 they're not alone. MBA programs produce business practitioners. They don't produce leaders. Mm. That's not their emphasis. And so as I hear some of these professors who are just wildly knowledgeable, in the art of business talk, it didn't really include a, a, a leadership component to it. And for a guy who had led for 20 years or had followed amazing leaders for 20 years, I started to see a major gap in leadership within the business world. Funny enough, at the same time I was there, Admiral William McRaven, who wrote the book, uh, you know, Make Your Bed and uh, and it's famous for uh, the, the, the commencement speech at UT, yeah. was trying to, he was the chancellor of UT, he was trying to stand up a leadership curriculum for the undergraduates. They would go through a leadership class, one class, three credits, 
their freshman year, sophomore year, junior year, and senior year. And the university, which is, you know, UT is wildly liberal, uh, had an allergic reaction to it. it. They had an allergic reaction to it. Even brought in General Tony Kuklo, amazing uh, mentor of mine, loved the guy, and they couldn't get it through. Wow. And, you know, as we talked to more business leaders and I did research and I was starting to build up this vetted foundation, I saw a leadership deficit uh, in, in the business world. And I'm like, you know what? I, I know where to find some leaders that you can teach the industry to, but they've got the soft skills that you can't teach mm. and the soft skills that you need right now to lead your people through, let's say a crisis like um, COVID. COVID. They look at COVID and, and they're like, okay, just another day. We're going to have to adjust how we operate. But guess what? The end goal does not change. Our tactics of how we get there are going to adjust wildly. We're going to have to be innovative, um, but we're going to continue in the direction that we had planned uh, a year previously to, to, to COVID. And hey, it's also the same mindset of when we see crisis or we, we, you know, uh, we, we basically see an opportunity. Crisis means opportunity, and that's how we approach it. If, if our enemy and we are both in crisis, we understand that if we can get through the crisis better, you know, more efficiently, we can seize you know, uh, the advantage on them, the high ground. Mm. Same thing with business. If you can navigate through this more efficiently, more effectively, more calmly, then you can seize more market share from your competitors and come out stronger. Okay, so... Let's let's get into you know this concept then of of talent, right? Because you know you knew where the talent was, right? So I'm going to quote you again. Um, so in the book, you say buds attract some of the highest potential youth from across the nation. In fact, you mentioned this earlier. You were saying these are all highly intelligent, highly athletic, highly motivated uh, by the opportunity to prove themselves. And classes have included Ivy League grads. NCAA Olympic athletes, right? Investment bikers, uh, but also just kids right out of high school who, who never played a sport in their life. Yet, yet instructors have long since given up on predicting who will succeed and who won't because more often than not, they guess wrong. An elite athlete who can run farther and faster than everyone else has no greater chance of graduating than a former high school uh, speech and debate member with a no quit attitude. Talent may not look like what you think it will. So Mike, how do you define talent? Talent, um, talent is high potential. It, it, it's not necessarily a high performer yet. Ultimately your job is once you get, you, you decide who the talent is to develop in them, to, to develop them in such a way that they become high-performing leaders and multiply a high-performing team. They're, 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 they're a multiplier to it. So um, what you're looking for with uh, talent, the definition mm -hmm. of talent is you're looking for a set of characteristics and attributes that matter to you. Notice I say that matter to you. The problem okay. with a lot of businesses is they don't know what characteristics and attributes matter to them because they've never created talent profiles. A lot of companies approach hiring for any role within their company, they approach it the same. You cannot do that. If, you, if your organization consists of the engineers and salespeople, the talent profiles for a sales uh, person and an engineer are gonna look wildly different. And so you've got to develop a process to identify who is talented 
in, in both those realms. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, you know, the reason we gave up on trying to guess who could make it through uh, SEAL training is because you were making decisions based off objective things. Oh, they're Harvard educated, so they're really smart and they're, 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 they're going to make it through. Or, oh, hey, they played football. Uh, you know, they're the starting fullback at Florida State. They're going to make it through this training. Um, or, hey, look at that guy. He's 200 pounds of muscle with only 10% body fat. He's going to make it through. It's most, almost like trying to utilize a resume to make a decision. You're making a, a decision based off a resume alone. A resume doesn't tell you who somebody is. It's just part uh, of the, the surface. Now, in special operations training, and this was what the, ver- the business world uh, isn't very good at, is mm-hmm. pushing people, is adding a little stress during the, the, the interview process. The reason we make special operations so difficult, the, the assessment and selection phase, the reason we uh, push these young men and women to the edge is because we understand it's at, it's at one's limits, at the, the, the end of their mental capacity, where true character and attributes reveal themselves. It's only then can you see what a person's made of. And so even though a person might've been an NCAA division one football player, once you make them cold, once you make them wet, once you make them sandy and you don't let them sleep for two days, Mm -hmm. that's when you start to see what they're built of. And, you know, again, you you translate it to the business world. We, you know, people hiring managers, HR uh, generalists, Make decisions based off objective things which are easy to measure. Right. What great, what great hiring managers, what great, you know, great leaders in business uh, need to become great at is measuring the subjective things. And that's what we talk about in the book is, you know, we are looking for those subjective things that can't be measured on an assessment, personality assessment, that can't be, you know, uh, evaluated on a resume. It just takes a process to reveal it. Yeah. You know, you taught you, so this is really um, the heart and soul of kind of where you're coming from. Um, you, you kind of now started alluding to those innate um, characteristics that truly define what talent is. And so I'm going to quote you here from the book. While some of the Navy SEALs performance is certainly based on the training they received in the SEAL pipeline, their character as human beings is much more important than any training. SEAL assessment, selection, and training, or any training for that matter, cannot create character where none exists. Yes, it can sharpen a person's will, increase their ability to handle stress, and teach them that they are capable of more than they know. But the raw material must be there. If an individual does not have the intrinsic qualities necessary, then they must be weeded out. So I definitely want to explore what some of those key intrinsic qualities or attributes are. And I know you mentioned they could be different for every company, but there are definitely some key ones you looked for, certainly in the SEALs. And we'll get into that in in a moment. But first, I'd love to know, how do you define character? Not not the characteristic, but what is, what is character? Character is the behaviors you exude when no one is watching. Mm. Point blank. Point blank. And, you know, without character, you cannot have exceptional leadership. And with a lack of character, you look in the business world, you have incidents like Enron or Volkswagen. Right. 
that was, hey, they were, they were wildly intelligent people. They were wildly established uh, business leaders, but they lacked character and they made very unethical decisions that brought their organizations down or uh, substantially put their, uh, their, their organizations at uh, extreme risk. Same thing on the battlefield. Hey, in, in, at no point do I want people listening to this to think that the special operations uh, assessment and selection process, which has evolved over half a century and still continues to evolve this day, is mm -hmm. flawless. It's not, it's not even close. We, we still make mistakes. It's when we identify we've made a mistake. Let's say somebody made it through the, uh, the training, they made it into the SEAL teams, and then on the battlefield, they go on to do something wildly unethical. And when special operations does something that's wildly unethical, guess where it ends up the next day? On the front page. Yeah. And that is, it degrades our credibility as special operations. It erodes the trust of the nation in us to do the right thing. And that does happen. And when that happens, we gather and we say, what did we miss in the hiring process? Allowing this person to come in. And how do we prevent ourselves like what can we learn how do we prevent ourselves from allowing an individual like that into our organization again and that's not easy but that conversation needs to take place it, it, you can also do the same thing for for somebody who becomes a wildly amazing seals hey what was it about that individual in training that we just knew they were going to be a rock star so you know this is really interesting because you point out something in the book which is where maybe uh, you know, a lot of companies, uh, and even from time to time, as you said, uh, maybe even the SEALs, although certainly I, I think these people are weeded out most of the time. But you talk about the difference between personality and character. And, you know, I, I think, you know, you go, you, you talk about there, there's a big difference between hiring someone for their personality versus hiring someone for their character. And you talk about how, unfortunately, many hiring managers confuse personality with character. And, uh, you know, you talk about, uh, you, you say that personality is a terrible, terrible characteristic to base your hiring decision on. What's the difference between personality and character? Let, let me tell you, put it to you this way. Okay. If I asked you, do you think I, you know, do you think I liked every SEAL I served with? What do you think you, you, you would respond to? I would probably, well, knowing as much as I know about the SEALs, I would say definitely not. No, no. Even the, the championship winning uh, New York Yankees, they, they all didn't get along. But professionals have a way of putting aside their, their feelings or their, 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 their differences mm -hmm. in the pursuit of a common goal. Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately what we're looking for as professionals. So, you know, character, again, are those, those, those behaviors you, you, you exude when nobody's watching. That's why in special operations tra training, when we push you to the edge, uh, there's no hiding. We're, we're going to see what you're made of, even though, you know, we're watching you closely. Personality is, is, is like asking, it's like saying, do I like this person? Uh, person? It's likability. There are people with wildly big personalities that people yes. gravitate to but within their professions they're wildly useless they, they serve no purpose in the organization they can't drive results what a lot of companies are fixating on today is this thing called culture fit right yes and they're getting it wrong i understand whoever developed the uh, the term i understood what they meant but it's been 
it's morphed. Um, So when people say culture fit, what they're actually saying, 99% of people is, do I like this person? Do they fit into the culture because because I, uh, I like them? I don't care if I like my teammates or not. I'm building a high-performing team. I'm not building a family. People keep talking about this. In fact, Reed Hastings in his recent book said, you're building high-performing teams. You're not building families. They have families. They're going to go home to their families at the end of the day. Just like for a SEAL deployment, we came home and we went back to our respective families. But I want a high-performing team. And again, if it's a team of professionals, whether they like each other or not, they'll get the job done. And they'll find uh, pride in the fact that they, they accomplish something together. So likability doesn't matter. What ultimately matters is that your values align with, uh, with mine or the organization, that you believe in integrity, that you're humble, that you're, you're driven, that you're resilient. If you, whatever your, your, your attributes or whatever your values are for your organization, you're hiring people that match those. If I can't, if you're high performing, Simon Sinek talked about this, the, the performance trust matrix. Yep. If you're a high-performing individual, but you are low trust, you have no place in our organization. I'd rather go with somebody that's an average performer, but high trust. I know they're going to do the right thing. I know their values align with mine. And if I send them off to conduct a mission and I can't be there uh, as their, their, their boss, I know they're going to make the right decisions. I know they're going to do the right thing. And I know they're going to get the job done. It might not be to the standard that the high performer uh, would get it done but I'm not willing to, to, to budge on, uh, on integrity. That's okay. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, not willing to budge on integrity because integrity is what you refer to in the book as one of those foundational character attributes, right? So you talked you, you've kind of defined, uh, what character means, but then you, you talk about there, that there are those so character, right? What you're made out of when no one's looking, who, who are you really, right? And it's the, the, the characteristics, those attributes uh, that we're really looking for, those qualities. And in- integrity, you mentioned, is one of those foundational attributes of talent that special operations looks for. Um, what are some of the others that because I, you know, in looking at, at some of these attributes, I mean, it, I couldn't imagine a company not wanting people with, with some of these uh, attributes. Absolutely. So as Dr. Josh Cotton, Dr. Josh Cotton is an IO psychologist. He's the okay. head of assessments for Honeywell. He designs these for, for, for a living. So he, George, and I started to uh, talk about what are the attributes, the common threads of high performers, regardless of domain or industry. And so, again, this, this is one big research book on the special operations community and great organizations from the business world. And each of the special operations communities had codified what their attributes were. Okay. Some had a list of 12, some had a list of three, but they put the time into understanding what, what is the talent profile that we consider a high performer uh, in our community. And they were very close to each other. As Dr. Carol Green, a military psychologist said, they're all looking for ice cream, just slightly different flavors. Right. And so we looked at all these, we looked at some, some organizations, we talked to Joe DePinto, who's a West Point graduate, former army officer, CEO of 7-Eleven, talked to other CEOs and CHROs, and, and we came up with nine foundational uh, characteristics or, or, or attributes, and they are drive, resiliency, 
adaptability, humility. We just talked about integrity. Yeah. Effective, effective intelligence, team ability, curiosity, and emotional strength. I want so I want to ask so two of them. I mean, a lot of them on their face, right? Uh, you know what they are, prima facie. But describe. When you talk about effective intelligence, effective intelligence, what does that mean? So as we're talking with business leaders and military leaders that, that ran these uh, assessment selection programs, they all used the same word. I'm not kidding you. Hey, intellectual horsepower matters. It does. We look for people that are highly intelligent. Mm. What Brian Decker, who was a special forces commander, he ran, he was in charge of special forces assessment and selection and very much revolutionized it. He looked at the data, some of it wasn't uh, predictive. And so uh, he, he, he redesigned the program so that it was measuring the right things. He said, you know, companies have to identify what is the gate? You know, most of us use these intelligence tests for the military, it's the ASVAB. Uh, for other companies, they're, they're, there's a multitude. But what is the minimum intelligence requirement for certain jobs in your company? And if you haven't done assessments of your high performers and your low performers, you're not going to know what that is. But what he found was that at a certain level, that they, they, they identified the level, you have to be above this score. But increasing a, a, a score that was above that gate didn't necessarily equate to an increase in performance. And so that's why they chose that. that. And so once somebody passes that intelligence, uh, let's say, requirement, that gate is closed. It's not, it's no longer used in the hiring process. Um, but the Marine Corps defined this well, the MARSOC community. Effective intelligence is the ability to use what intelligence you do have to solve uh, very dynamic problems for which no real world or book solution exists. So it doesn't matter if you're a 130 IQ or you're a 100 IQ. What mm -hmm. really matters is if you throw the same problem at those two people, who can effectively uh, apply the intelligence they have to solve that problem in the right manner in the least amount of time? That's what matters. Some people are wickedly, uh, wicked, wicked smart. They go to school, they get a 4.0, but you put them into a real world setting and they suffer through paralysis, through analysis. They want to overanalyze problems. We saw this in the SEAL teams. We, we, we would recruit people out of uh, the Ivy League schools and they just didn't cut it as SEAL officers because they made everything so damn complex rather than keeping things simple in such a chaotic uh, environment. Understanding that people can only execute simple tasks when uh, they're getting shot at, when one of their friends is lying uh, wounded beside them. Yeah. And so that was, that was interesting as we explored and researched more into effective intelligence. Okay, that makes, uh, that makes tremendous sense um, because we have again, a lot of people in the business world who they're wicked smart, but when it comes to, to solving the problems on the ground as they're happening, real world stuff, um, something as simple as strategizing how to close a deal, it, it, you know, it's, you know, it's kind of like, I see a lot of these, these days, there's a lot of assessment uh, tests, right? For, for salespeople. And it used to be just the personality attributes that you were being tested on. Now they've gone way beyond personality. Yes. Everyone now is testing for, I mean, pattern recognition, motivation, 
Yes. <laughs> I'm look, you know, you look at some of this stuff and it's like, great, but you know, can you close the deal? Right. So it's, it's, it's just, it's really interesting. So there was a study amongst millionaires. And if I said, if I asked you, what do you think the average GPA of a millionaire is? What, what would your guess be? Well, you know, I, I know it's going to be lower than, than everyone would assume. Right. So, you know, counterintuitively, I bet it's not as high as people assume. No, it was right around a like two seven to, to, to three point oh. That's unbelievable. Now, now it goes back to what we're talking about in 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 you know the talent war about a resume doesn't tell all. What people with two point sevens to three point Yeah, there's some people that lazy that that could pull that off, but for the people, some of those people, they had to earn that two point seven, right. and they had to utilize a lot of skills. They had to, I mean, they, they had to show resilience. They they had to work harder. They had to become innovative. Uh, they had to be adaptive. They had to find ways to get that 2.7. They had to develop other skills that, that the 4.0 student doesn't have to develop because things maybe came easy to them. And so it's because of that, those, those scars, those lessons learned, they develop the soft skills to a greater extent than people that are insanely smart. You know, okay. So, so this is where you start getting into um hire for the future, not the past, because really what, what leaders in business should be looking for are those individuals that, you know, how to figure out how, how to get from point A to point B. Uh, and it didn't come easy to them, right? You talk about in the book, you say prior industry experience is simply not the most effective predictor of performance. Why is that? Uh, the special operations community proved this one. They just put this one to bed. It's dead. So, you know, special operations doesn't go to high schools and say, hey, uh, everyone in the audience in the auditorium, uh, if you're interested in trying out for the SEALs, raise your hand if you have prior special operations experience. Nobody would raise their hand. So we became an organization that had become very good at attribute or what we call potential-based hiring. We, we, we developed processes to assess what is subjective. And again, the business world just uses the easy button they go for, uh, for, for, for subjective. So, um, you know, we've end, end, ended up in this, this situation so many times with EF Overwatch where we put an exceptional uh, candidate coming fresh out of the military in front of a uh, employer and the employer decides to go with somebody with industry experience, even though they knew they didn't have the character. And it shouldn't be a surprise that sometimes weeks Months later, they come back to us and say, hey, you, you advised us differently. And guess what? We made a huge mistake. This guy's absolutely toxic. The, the individual we hired with industry experience. Um, just because somebody, hey, they're SEALs. They're SEALs with 20, 20 years. Just because they have 20 years in the SEAL teams does not mean they're better than the SEAL with five years in. Mm. It doesn't. Uh, tenure does not uh, equate to competence whatsoever. Especially if they had bad habits, they had bad mentorship, uh, they lacked character. Um, you know, they can have all the years in the world, mm. but it will not make them as competent as somebody who has all the character attributes that we're looking for. Yeah, you suggest um, obviously there has to be a minimum requirement, right? But that's what you focus yes. on. You're like minimum requirements are necessary, um, but that's it. Past the past the minimum requirement, forget all the experience. And you actually in the book. 
you point to the X-ray program or 18X at the U.S. Army John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and School, SWICS, right? You, it's a program that gives civilian candidates without any military background direct access to special forces assessment selection and training versus typically what you would do is take only candidates directly from those who are serving in the various branches of the armed forces. Can you tell us about what that program proved uh, and the type of operators that SWIX is, uh, turns out? So, yeah, we, we interviewed uh, General Jerry Boykin for this one. Jer Jerry Boykin was one of the initial sort of uh, Delta Force uh, founders. He was there when it, when it was created. Uh, an exceptional leader, also led uh, U.S. Army Special Operations Command. And, you know, when they stood up this program, they were having trouble filling the funnel for special operations, for their special forces community. And they were only drawing from the Army. People that had prior infantry or prior Army experience were mm -hmm. only allowed to try out for uh, special forces. Mm -hmm. And because of the lack of numbers going in, they said, hey, we got to do something differently. And they started saying, hey, why don't we just let people uh, come directly through boot camp and try out for special forces? And there were parties, there were camps within the army that said, absolutely not. Um, somebody without military experience, experience will not make a great uh, special forces uh, you know, soldier. And as these conversations are going on, there's a Vietnam vet, a sergeant major. Uh, they had lost sight of history. Because of the needs in Vietnam, he didn't have time to go through special forces training. They attached him to a, he went through some initial screeners okay. to, 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 to measure his attributes. And they sent him directly to a special forces outfit in Vietnam that was in country. And he learned the job, on, he learned on the job training uh, and became a special forces member and was in for decades. And he reminded them that he had never went through special forces training. He learned it, uh, learned it on the job. Um, the Army special forces community is not unique in this. The SEALs used to do the same thing. They used to only take people with prior fleet experience. Uh, Marine recon would only take people with prior infantry experience. Um, and so when they tested this, they found that the candidates coming in were more athletic, were more highly educated, and didn't come with bad habits. Mm. They didn't come with bad habits. But what do we do in the business world? If I'm Burger King and I need a general manager and I see somebody on the marketplace that worked at McDonald's and maybe was the general manager or one level below, what do we do? Hey, hire them quickly because they have industry experience. Yeah. Why would you think that because they worked for McDonald's as a general manager, that they were proficient at their job? That's just, that is a lazy assumption that people make. And uh, yeah, the 18X uh, program, I, I think now, the, 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 the majority of the special forces community comes out of that 18 x-ray uh, program. And for good reason, it's, it's changed the game for them. Even the SEAL teams, you can come directly out of high school or college and, and go to Navy boot camp and direct to SEAL uh, training to see if you have what it takes. Yeah. Amazing. I think it's, you know, um, it's kind of like what uh, Chris Gardner, the, uh, the guy who's at the, the center of the story, pursuit of happiness. Um, yes. He said that what, what he looks for, or no, when I think it was when, uh, yeah, when he started at 
Bear Stearns when he finally, you know, started making, um, you know, making his way uh, as a stockbroker and he, he made it right. Um, and he was finally getting an opportunity to do what he, he really wanted to do. He hadn't become a success yet, but he finally had the chance because so many doors were slammed on him because he didn't have anything, no experience. He didn't have the right education. He didn't have, didn't have you know, didn't, didn't come from the right uh, background. He, he said that what he was told is that at uh, Bear Stearns at that time, they were looking for PhDs. And he said, well, I don't have a PhD. He said, no, no, we, we want our guys poor, hungry, hungry. and determined. And, and that's that, you know, that, that's, uh, I, I think, really the kind of characteristics and qualities that, that make a difference. You, you know, I, I know a guy who's completely uh, plagiarized that same approach to hiring, and that's Jocko. Poor, hungry, and, uh, and driven, as he says. There you go. It, it makes sense. Somebody who is willing in the, the, the face of an obstacle to find a way over it, under it, around it, but the unique person that if none of those options work, they will find a way to drive right through that thing. Come hell or high water, they will find a way through that obstacle to win. And if you can build a force like that, a force like that makes the seemingly un, uh, impossible possible. You know, one of the biggest issues um, that you guys uh, have identified in the book is that, and, and this is, you know, I think, the reason for a lot of the, um, the misalignment and the laziness, you know, whether it's resumes or prior experience, it, you've identified that companies just don't know what they're truly looking for in an employee. Um, you say that instead they default to making hiring decisions based on how impressive someone's resume looks or what kind of experience they have. Um, but put all of that aside. How is it that a company doesn't know what they're really looking for in an employee? I mean, how, how, you know, how is that? Where, 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 where talent is a priority, winning mm -hmm. is a priority. So I said earlier, a leader sets the tone. Mm -hmm. Jocko set the tone for, for Tashi and a bruiser. Um, the leaders of company set the tone with regards to talent. Now, in special operations, it's a foundational belief. People are the most important thing in the world because the right person in the right place will make decisions to solve problems or will seize opportunities where others will uh, will hesitate. The soft community, everything, our, our foundational beliefs all revolve around people. Well, in the business world, every CEO, especially of a publicly traded company, will tell you that people matter. But again, going back to character, do their actions, do their behaviors reflect what they are saying? And usually the answer is no. Mm. And we can diagnose pretty quickly when, when George, myself, uh, Tom Lokar, who is the CHRO, CHRO of Mydel, uh, who just came on uh, as the uh, director of our consulting services for EF Overwatch, we can, we can see pretty quickly whether talent is a priority within the company or not, which means the, the CEO, the president, the leader of that organization has said, our HR department is a strategic function through which we will gain a competitive strategic advantage over our competition. And to give you a sense from the research that, that we found is um, 
most CHROs, this was shocking to us, make three times less than their C-suite counterparts. If that doesn't tell you right there that, that talent and human resources isn't a priority, I, I don't know what does. It, the other thing was how HR is structured within companies. Hey, we structure special operations assessment and selection. It is a tier, tier, tier one priority. That's what we know. We understand that. We give them the resources they need to do their job to select the next generation of talent. Um, but, you know, if your HR department reports into, let's say, the legal department, then it's a compliance function. If let's say, and we see this often, your HR director or your, your HR department uh, reports into the CFO, then that is a overhead function. But if your HR person, your CHRO, your, your chief talent officer, your chief people officer, whatever title you want to use, is tied at the hip with the CEO, then there's a hope and there's a, yeah, a hope that it is actually a strategic function within your organization. But most, and I'll finish with this. Again, we look at hiring. Most people look at hiring in a very conventional manner. They, they just you know uh, look at what's objective and, and make decisions based off that. The conventional train of thought is that HR is just a cost center. That's it. It's a non-revenue generating function. When you look at it indirectly, that SEAL assessment and selection, that special forces assessment and selection, it may not be producing results on the battlefield, which is what we consider revenue. But it's the thing that is feeding every revenue generating function within our organization. HR is what's feeding talent into your sales teams, within into your marketing teams, into your research and development. It's feeding your engineers. And if you can actually switch the mindset within an organization, a business to understand that, and put very talented people, in fact, putting some of your best people in, in charge of people operations, then you'll see a wildly different organization start to, uh, to, to take root. And this is what I consider the definition of business transformation for a lot of companies in America, is that's what you need to become trans, uh, transformative with, is how you view people. You see, now this is, this is uh, you know, again, where, where your book um, really brings forth a revelation. And that is the concept of the talent mindset. The talent mindset. So very few organizations have the talent mindset. And, and in the book, you say, absent a talent mindset, your company will fail. On the most fundamental level, the majority of companies don't have a talent mindset and it is holding them back. So let's define what that means. When you talk about the mindset or the talent mindset, what is that? And why must a company that wants to win have a talent mindset? Again, it goes back to people. Uh, the special operations community has five, what we call truths, axioms. Okay. Humans are more important than hardware. Quality is better than quantity. Special operations cannot be mass produced. They cannot be mass produced. Talent cannot be mass produced. It takes time and effort. And that's why a lot of companies fail. It's because they don't want to put the time and effort into. That's, 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 so, that's why it's so damn hard to be a leader. Because it's what you do when the clock stops. After 4 p.m. is that you have some of your people stay behind so that you can mentor and coach them and make them better at what they do. Competent soft forces cannot be created after an emergency. 
how does that translate after? So when a war starts, every single time our political leaders say, we need more Navy SEALs, we need more Green Berets. And every time our answer is, we cannot uh, mass produce, we cannot create special operations forces more in, in a more, uh, more uh, timely manner, just because an emergency arose. We will not deviate from the process. We don't allow mediocrity in our organization. And if we do that, we'll start to taint or ruin the culture. And, and so the business correlation to that is, again, competence, competent special operations cannot be created after an emergency. This is growth. This is growth for businesses. When businesses, which is a great problem to have, when they start to experience growth and they realize they need more manpower, they deviate from their processes, they view it as just a tactical operation, let's get as many butts in seats as possible now. And when you do that, you start to dilute your culture. And then this one, the fifth one, special operations uh, forces require non-special operations forces assistance. What that's saying is that good people at every level of the organization and every function matter. So, you know, yes, Navy SEALs are sexy, Green Berets are sexy, but it's all those people behind the Navy SEAL or the, the special forces. Uh, at one command I was at, for every SEAL we had, we had 15 support personnel, each carrying out a critical function that enabled us to be successful on the battlefield. Um, so that, that lack of a talent mindset is gonna kill your, uh, your organization. Um, the, you know, what, what we see a lot of is people treat HR as a, uh, a reactive sort of process. That's right. Um, it's, it's, it's almost like, as George Randall likes to say it, cause he's been in town acquisition for 20 years. Okay. They consider me an order taking service. Oh, I have a problem. I need to replace this person. You've got three, three weeks, go find me somebody, uh, else, um, and when you do that, you, you, you compromise your, your process and you're going to make bad hires. Within EF Overwatch, for our executive search firm, uh-huh. one, there's two things I have to, well, one thing I have to hear and one thing I need to reinforce and make sure that my client understands. One, uh, on, a, on a video teleconference like this, as we're taking in a client, and, and I've had to push, you know, tell people we're, we're not going to take their business, is do you believe leadership is more important than industry experience? And if the business leader, not the HR director, the CEO or, or the owner of that company looks at me and says, Mike, leadership trumps industry experience any day of the week, then they've, they've passed my first uh, checkbox. Okay. The second is I tell them, hey, this process takes time. If you call me next week and say, hey, I need something in two weeks, we'll cancel <laughs> that contract. I, I'll advise you, hey, I know you're, you're really in need of talent right now let the process reveal the right talent. Don't, when you, you put a timeline on it, again, you've, you've compromised your process. So, you know, it's interesting because, um, you know, I've seen some great uh, human resource leaders, I mean, truly strategic minds. And as you said, they've been attached at the hip to the CEO. Um, but so much of the time, because no investment is really made, uh, you know, they're, they're an afterthought and, yes. you know, it's it really when you, you don't realize it, especially as someone who's, you know, has to interact with human resources and, you know, I mean, just the way they're looked at in the recruitment industry as well, they're looked at as, uh, as an impasse they're looked at, yeah. right. As a, right. As a, as like a, a blockade, uh, to being successful and, and, 
you know, I, I can understand why, because they're, they're not, in many cases, they haven't been afforded the opportunity to become strategic partners, right? They're just, like you said, butts in seats. Um, but, you, you know, you talk about how um, companies, that, you know, they say they want talent, um, and, and that's what the human resources team is meant to go and uncover, uh, but they're not incentivized to do so given the way they measure effective, uh, the effectiveness of their hiring process. Can you elaborate on how companies currently evaluate the effectiveness of, of, of their hiring processes and, and why it's so flawed? It, it's, it's time to fill. What is your time from the time the, 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 the job rack was given to you? How quickly did you fill it? That, it, it, it like, don't worry about the other metrics. That's, that's what they're being judged on. 100%. So again, you're putting a time limit on a process. Special operations uh, assessment and selection usually is about one to two years. Now, am I saying businesses can replicate that? Absolutely not. Um, but when you put a time limit, like I said, on, on an HR director or HR generalist to go find somebody as quickly as possible, you don't have a process. You're basically just saying, get a butt in the seat now, that's what I need. I need five people, go find them. Let's, let's get this project done. So back to your point, when HR is not incentivized, or I, I think a better way to explain it, when they feel like they're second-class citizens within their own organization, mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're, they're not going to be ineffective. They're, they're not going to feel like they're part of the team. And hence, they're not going to perform to a level to, to, to make sure that they're solving your problem. So, you know, a lot of HR, because you've seen the content we're producing on, on LinkedIn, a lot of human resources uh, professionals have reached out to me, to, to me and George and like, thank you. That's how we feel. You know, our leadership just won't listen to us. And, and, and of course, I reach out and say, hey, I'm with you. I understand. Um, so you actually have a choice now. You, you can actually complain about your leadership mm -hmm. and do nothing about it and just, you know, point fingers and cast blame. And, and just be miserable, or you can convince, you can start to build coalitions. You can start to lead up your chain of command and explain how you can be a force multiplier to your organization. You can explain to your CEO of, hey, sir, if you're thinking of standing up a, a new department, we'd love to be part of that decision-making process in the room because ultimately if you choose to, to stand up a new branch of the company or a new department, guess what? You're gonna need people to fill that and we're going to be involved in the process. We'd love to be involved in the early phases of that planning. So, you know, for, for, for my HR specialists, you actually have to be, you have, you have to work harder than everyone else in the company. Because not only do you have to go find the talent that they need you to find, you have to go spend time in each of these departments to truly understand their function, to look and ask questions about, hey, can you talk to me about that, that person that you said is a high performer? And, and if I contrast them, who's your low performer? Well, tell me about why they're a low performer. And you have to understand every department and every function almost as well as the sales manager, the marketing director, in order to truly understand what they need and to build the relationships. At the end of the day, if you're HR sitting in your office and you're not out building relationships with your peers, the, the managers in each of the functions, you're wrong. You're wrong. Now, the, the one thing that I will say, that we, we, we learned this very quickly in the special operations community. If we send B players, and there's B players, don't get me wrong, there's a, there's a talent distribution in mm -hmm. any organization. If you have 100 people, you can rank them number one, 
all the way to, 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 to 100. If we send a SEAL who's a B player, who's not our best performer, to assessment and selection, they're in charge of the hiring process, who do you think they're going to hire? They're going to hire more B players or C players. That's why we have to send our very best to be in charge, our A players to be in charge of assessment and selection. Because A players, and again, a lot of people get this wrong. They're like, what you're talking about is alpha males. I'm not talking about alpha males. Right. I'm talking about A players. I'm talking about that guy, Staff Sergeant Ben, who was so humbly confident that he could look at a young man or a young woman and say, that person is going to be an exceptional Marine. We need to get them into this organization. And A players will hire other A players because they want to be better themselves. And they know if they bring in this exceptional talent, it's going to put a pressure on them to elevate their performance. And that's why you need your very best. Now, is it easy or is it, is it easy for a CEO to say, let's take Lawrence, our best salesperson off the line and put him in charge of hiring 20 uh, additional sales uh, reps over the next six months? No, no, it's not. And Lawrence will probably not want to go. But the reason the military to, to develop our leaders, the reason that somebody has to go run training at some point in their career, usually a, a two-year billet, is develop them as a leader. Think how much better your salespeople would be if they had to go get involved in the hiring process. What it forces them to do is say, okay, let me contextualize why I've been so, so successful in sales. What is it that I do that has made me so successful? When you have to go train junior SEALs, it makes you think. And when you start to teach, you actually start to learn that process better. And you develop as a leader. Oh, that's why I've been doing the things that I've been doing for five years. Now, as I'm teaching it, I truly get it. I have a level of understanding now. And when we send SEALs to training, you see them come back more competent, more confident, and more eager to, to get in and apply this understanding that they've just developed. Yeah, I mean, this is this is such a powerful concept. What you talk about in the book about getting your leaders, uh, your A, I mean, your 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 A player leaders into the hiring process. Uh, first of all, if you do that, then that whole function is going to become far more strategic, and everyone's going to appreciate how important it is. Number one. Number two, if you don't do that, and if you do happen to have you know B players. Uh, involved in the hiring process, then you get into something that's uh, closely related to fear-based hiring, which you talk about yes. in the book, right? Fear-based hiring. Can you tell tell us about fear-based hiring, what that's about? Fear-based hiring is because some of the metrics that HR people are evaluated on is how long the person will last in the role. Beyond time to fill is how long they'll last in the role. Mm -hmm. And so they hire based off who induces the least fear? And who can I look at the hiring manager for the department and say, well, they had five years of industry experience. Huh, we don't know why they didn't work out. Fear-based hiring is basically, this is the best way to put it. Most companies are hiring not to lose. Most companies are hiring not to lose. And when you're, when you, when you're playing the game not to lose, you're not playing to win. That, that's fear-based hiring. And uh, unfortunately, you know, it, again, much like uh, evaluating the objective, uh, hiring based off fear is, is the easy thing to do. It's the easy button. You know, it, 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 this is so, so true. Um, 
you know, you say if a company is struggling with talent, it's often because HR just has not been empowered to win, right? They're hiring not to lose. Um, So the other thing is, um, all right, so these are all the, um, you know, the the gaps and the dilemmas and the, the issues that companies can avoid and, and build a far more robust and dynamic uh, blueprint for going after the talent, right? But just because they, um, just because they put together a program like the one that you're suggesting in the book, which by the way, if they did, then they would be bulletproof. But then they've got to actually be a place where the, where talent wants to be. They got to become a talent magnet. They got to be able to attract the talent. That's the second problem. And you talk about that in the book because the, the, you, you say that most companies spend thousands marketing their products, hundreds of millions marketing their products or services to customers, but they don't put enough time, energy, or money toward marketing to their future employees. And this is a huge costly mistake. Alternatively, you say the military and SOF in particular are talent magnets and businesses can learn a lot by studying how they attract talent. So Mike, how does special operations attract talent and how can companies go about branding themselves to become talent magnets? So this is about controlling your brand. It's not just your brand to your customers, your brand to people that work there. See, and that's what's and, overlooked. They're, they're so fo- companies are so focused on, the, on the, the customer, the client side, right? That you're so right about this. Go on. Sorry I interrupted. What, no, no, no. Where you're going to is, you know, we have a saying that positivity, uh, you know, sort of uh, breeds more positivity. Negativity begets more negativity. Mm-hmm. If you create a very strong employee brand, Guess what that's going to do for your customers? They're going to be looking at that saying, you're an organization that puts a precedence on people. We're going to do business for you. It actually, they, 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 they play off each other. They're mutually supporting. But if you don't control your brand as an organization, guess who's going to control it for you? The person that, that the disgruntled person that leaves your organization, that gets on Glassdoor, that gets on Yelp, that gets on other social media and says, hey, Acme company, screw them bad leadership, and that's going to be plastered everywhere. A lot of companies just don't do that. One of the things that we're, we're standing up with, you know, our consulting with, with EF Overwatch is we do a very good job of that. We'll come in and teach you how to do that. What you're going to do, what it simply is, is tell the story of your employees. Tell the story of your leadership and your values and what you hold dear. And then get it out there. If you're not playing social media today, you're not stepping onto the battlefield. Do I like social media? Hell no. I was born in the 70s. It's born yeah. to be. Right. But guess what? It doesn't matter how I feel about it. That's the new battle space. It's the messaging. It's the branding. And so you should want, as a leader of an organization, to take that young employee who's been working hard and say, Sarah, I want to put you on the camera today. We've got, we've got, we've got a videographer. I want to highlight the exceptional work you're doing. I want to ask you a few questions. What is it about Acme Company that makes you just want to get out of bed and come to work in the morning. And other strong, you know, female leaders are going to hear their story, uh, Sarah's story, and they're going to say, I want to be part of that company. So special operations, we tell that story. 
we tell that story very well. And, and let's be honest, we've got one of the most, or, or one of the most, uh, I'd say effective or strong uh, platforms in the world. It's called Hollywood. Hollywood loves to tell the story for us. And so the global war on terror, even though the seals frown about guys, uh, you know, writing these, these glorifying books right. about their war stories, and I do, and that's not what the talent war is. The talent war is about special operations. It ain't about sure. me at all. Uh, yes, are there a story in two? And if you noticed, all my stories are about how I embarrassed myself in the <laughs> assessment and selection process. I mean, embarrassed. Um, things that I, I, I still, uh, that cause me grief to this day, even though I apologize for them. But, um, you, you know, those books during the global war on terror actually help fill the funnel. And as much as we, 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 we look down on them, they actually serve a, a purpose. And um, the fact that you have people writing books about Google, uh, what was it, in the Plex and, and all the others, mm. those actually fill your talent funnel. Because people read that about the exceptional talent, Sergey Brin, about the mentorship they got from Bill Campbell, and the fact that they spend two times more than their competitors on employees. That makes a lot of very intelligent people coming out of Silicon Valley, out of, out of Stanford or, or, or coders uh, of great, uh, you know, uh, skill want to be part of that organization. Yeah. I, I mean, honestly, you, you, in the, in the book, I mean, it's worth buying the book just for this part alone. You talk about how does special operations go about attracting the best talent. And I counted, you got like nine key bullet points in there. Um, and you talk about some of these, I mean, just attracting talent requires knowing what talented people want. What talented, what, what talented people want? People want to be part of an organization they can be proud of. People want opportunity. They want growth. And, and two last things they want. They want autonomy. They want the autonomy. They want to earn autonomy to make decisions for the organization. And they want ownership. They want ownership over their, their careers and their acceleration. And if you can provide those things, your retention rate is going to go through the roof. Um, now, you said, you said it, you know, this, this, this thing is just not simple. We, we, we do have a, uh, no, it is simple. It's just not easy. This, the, 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 the framework is there. Um, we, we have a, a formula that says, you know, talent plus leadership equals victory. This leadership, the, the leadership development, the talent management part is so damn hard. And if you can't get that right, then you're going to become a revolving door for talent because good talent, no matter how young or old it is, will not put up with bad leadership. So you, you've got to get both these, these parts of the, these, both these variables correct to, to have an organization that wins. I mean, it, you know, Again, as I said, just for that alone, just for that part of the book alone, because that's also revelatory, you really um, talk about how a business can become a brand that attracts talent, a, a brand that that great talent wants to come to. And, you know, whether it's, you know, getting your people out on social media, where, you know, using your, your, your people are your best marketing. I mean, it's, it's, it's just really powerful stuff. Um, and then let's say, and so then you, you also talk in the book about, um, so if you're now attracting that talent, so now you've got, you know how to select the, the, the great talent, right? 
um, you are attracting that talent, but then you got to have a process, right? You got to have a process for finding out who the A players are. <laughs> you got, and, and that's where, you know, your, your, your assessment comes into play. And I wanted to just point out just a couple of things that I really loved about your hiring process. Won't go into the whole thing. Again, another reason to buy the book. You want a, a bulletproof hiring process? Get get the talent war. But a couple of things I wanted to point out. So you talk about um, the questions that uh, the interviewer asks should be designed to elicit information about certain behaviors so that you can measure the attributes uh, identified in the talent profile that you've created, like for instance, drive or like humility. You know, so asking these kinds of, of questions that elicit that kind of knowledge about whether someone has those intrinsic qualities, those are not the questions you're usually asked, right? You're not asked those kind of questions. And you talk about pushing candidates outside their comfort zone by, by asking them those types of questions or unexpected questions uh, that force them to think about something other than what they came there to do. Right. Tell us about why is that? What, you know, what are you looking to do by coming at a, a candidate from left field and asking questions that aren't even about the job? So again, um, I'm not, I, I don't, what we're looking for is not how much they know about the company or, or not how much they know about the role. Mm -hmm. It's how much they know about themselves. That's what we're evaluating on is how well do you know yourself? How well has Lawrence become a master in Lawrence to where he can articulate? Everyone can articulate their strengths. Tell us about your weaknesses, which what is a weakness? It's an opportunity for growth. And I want to hear some, some genuine uh, answers. Ultimately, you know, so we didn't like, we didn't create this, uh, you know, subscriptive uh, interview process for people in the book. We steered away from that for a reason. Mm -hmm. Because companies have to figure this out on what works for them. What works for Google is not going to work for Goldman Sachs, which is not going to work for a small to mid-sized business. What you do have to have is a multivariate process. You can't depend on a resume alone. You can't depend on an interview uh, alone. You have to have multi uh uh, several variants that go into the decision-making process. That could be personal assessments. You've actually identified a personal assessment that is calibrated to your talent, to your industry that is providing predictive value. But we've had people talk about like, hey, well, what's the, and we even hear this sometimes, some leaders are like the number one interview question that without a doubt, I can tell you whether we're, that's just, that's stupid. There's no one question. There's no one process. So the reason behavioral interviews are so effective is, again, we're trying to get to the root of, I want to know your true behaviors when nobody's watching. I want to hear about your past behaviors. I want to hear the story of Lawrence. I want to hear that story. I want you to tell to how you've arrived to here and how your experiences have shaped you. We talk about, now in this, what I don't want people to say is that like, Oh, that means that a fresh high school student, or I'm sorry, a fresh college student out, out of college, a 23-year-old should be able to interview for, uh, for a CEO position. We're not saying that. Experience wow. does matter. The right type of life experience. So it's the Dunning-Kruger effect. You've got confidence. You've got knowledge. You know, a young kid out of college is right, uh, high and confident. Usually we call that Mount Stupid. 
<laughs> it's you, Lawrence, that, that how many years you, you said you've had over 35 years in the uh, industry? Don't make me that old, Mike, but no, I, I, I got 30, 25 years. 25, sorry. Um, so you've come down that, that, that curve of enlightenment. You, mm -hmm. you were confident at first when you were making your first sales and then you realized, oh my God, there's so much I don't know. <laughs> and eventually you, you, you went to the trough and you started on that path of enlightenment because you have all these scars, you have all these experiences. You now have this wide experience base from which you, you can draw from to solve problems that a young 23 year old has not seen. That's where experience matters. That's why I preach that why are military leaders? I don't call them veterans. We only source military leaders. Military leaders are like the world's greatest generalists, especially the ones that saw combat because they were in Iraq, they were in Afghanistan, they were in East Africa, and they saw all these drastically different problems for which there was no book solution. Right. And they found a way, whether it was a rough solution, they found a way to be successful. And when you put a, a problem in front of a true generalist, vice a specialist, right. that generalist can draw from such a wide experience base to solve that problem in a more efficient manner than a specialist. Um, that's why we call it general management. It's not specialized management, it's general management general managers. Um, but yeah, have a multivariate process. Uh, there's not going to be one interview question. Once you come up with a process, a lot of companies are going to read this book and they're going to come up with a process and guess what? It's going to take a whole lot of trial and error to see the right results. It took decades to build the special operations assessment and selection process to where it was, it was statistically effective. It's going to take you time as well. And it's going to take a lot of time and effort. So you may decide on, on, on several variants that you're going to use in your, your hiring process. And after six months, you're going to have to make adjustments. You may not be seeing the results and you're going to have to continue with that trial and error until you get that right. For some people, that may be a matter of months. For other companies, that may be a matter of three to, to 10 years until you start seeing a drastically different level of talent coming through the door. Yeah. Um, and then when they do come through the door, and um, I got two more questions for you, Mike. You've been yeah. great with your time. Um, but two more, two more questions for you. The first is that you get now. So now you've, you, you've got them. You've got the great talent. They're in your company, right? Um, but now we've got to talk about this concept in the book. You say you can't hire or fire your way to success, right? And you know, you talk about you can have the most effective talent acquisition program in the world, but if you don't properly develop your talent, your company will most likely fail. So can we talk about that a little bit? Because this is so true. What I, what I, what I have found is that once they get a great candidate, once a company finally gets a great candidate, there is so little spent on development, training and development, leadership development. Some companies do. Some companies do. Obviously, uh, special operations, you have all these schools constantly developing, developing, developing your talent. But we don't see that much of it uh, in, in corporate America. It's just not there. So, you know, why, you know, and you would think if you've got some, you, you know, because Companies think, well, I'm hiring the talent. I'm hiring someone who's supposed to have this skill. You know, your big mantra, one of your big mantras is hire for character, train for skill. Hire for character, train for skill. But 
a lot of companies' attitude is, no, 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 we're going to hire the experience. We're going to hire the skill. Um, you know, we don't want to invest the money in bringing people and then developing them. But why is it so important to continue to invest in someone's development, no matter how much skill or experience they have? Why is that so, so necessary? So I love how you said, uh, we're, we're just going to hire those uh, people with experience. I call that the old plug and play. We're going to hire people with experience so we can just plug them in and they're going to perform. That's, that still doesn't work. Yeah. So you, 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 you started with what is the definition of talent? Mm-hmm. It is somebody that displays the characteristics and attributes of, of a high potential individual. What takes that transformation from talented, or I'm sorry, a high potential in, in, uh, individual to a high performing team member or mm-hmm. what we call a rock star is what's in between. It's that leadership development. It's that coaching. It's that constant mentoring. It's allowing them to fail and then picking them up and say, hey, that's okay. It's going to take so much failure to become good at what you do. Let's talk through what happened so you never repeat that same mistake and that you can share that with the next generation of leaders. God, I feel so blessed to have been in the military, to, to, to have been in special operations where I had these amazing leaders that understood this. Jocko Willink. Guess who what one of my commanders was as well? Chris Fussell. If you don't recognize that name, Chris Fussell is the president of McChrystal Group. He penned oh. the teams with Stanley McChrystal. Yeah. Um, you know, Wyman Howard, who uh, is the commanding uh, admiral of, of the SEAL teams right now. All these sergeant majors who were just highly educated, humble individuals that took a young officer under their wing and said, hey, young buck, let's talk about what you just did. You just said, well, the military goes to all these schools. Yeah, we, we go to all these schools, but th- those are mainly the, the, the technical trade uh, mm-hmm. schools. This is where companies get it wrong. You don't need this formal leadership development process. If you train your leaders to become coaches and mentor, mentors, mm-hmm. the process, it becomes this, this self-fulfilling uh, uh, prophecy. So we, you know, what, what really sets us apart is that after a training evolution, Jocko would take us aside, we conduct. It's not optional. We do this every single day. We conduct an after action review or what time, you know, the sales world sometimes called the post-mortem. We would debrief ourselves. Even after missions over in Iraq and Afghanistan, we'd pull together and say, hey guys, what did we plan? Did it go to plan? What did we do well? But more importantly, where did we fail? Or if we didn't fail, maybe that's strong. Where do we need to improve? And if you do that with your young subordinate leaders on mm-hmm. a daily basis, and then you have them start to engage and do the same process with the people below them, you start to create this leadership development pro- program that will push your organization into the future. That's the key. That's not a formal process. Um, yeah, we do have some great leadership schools, but uh, um, ultimately it's the amount of time and effort that our leaders put into the people below them. Again, I've said it and I'll say it, this, this, this is my, if I preach anything, the legacy of leadership is how your organization performs when you leave as a leader. Yes, when I'm the CEO of a company, I am paid to drive results. And if I don't, I'll be out of there. But where your legacy is cemented is when you say, guys, it's my time. I'm handing the seat to somebody else. And they continue to accelerate, maybe at a faster rate. People will look and say, Lawrence, Lawrence set up an organization for success. Mm. That's what he did. He trained his people so well 
that he was no longer needed to solve their problems. That's the ultimate form of culture that you want to achieve. A winning culture is a decentralized culture. As, uh, as you said earlier, uh, as Jacko once uh, said to you, everybody leads. Everybody, everybody leads. leads. And you know something, um, you bring on A players and there's nothing a, true A players love more than constant professional development. And so you're going to retain those A players. And you also, uh, you know, in the, in the book, you mention uh, turning hopeless into hardcore. <laughs> so then you got your B players. Cause like you said, every organization there's, there's right. There, there's a matrix, you know, it doesn't matter how elite the organization within there, you're going to have your A's and your B's. Those B's yeah, might yeah. be better than anything else in, in any other organization, but there's still go. B's, right? Within yours. Um, so how do you, how do you, I love it. How do you turn hopeless into hardcore? This, this is the power of leadership. And don't get me wrong. Uh, as we wrote this book, Jocko took a look and, he, and he's like, hey, do you, do you mind if I give you some suggestions? I'm like, you've only written a couple of New York Times bestsellers. No, <laughs> yeah, I don't care what you know. I said, yeah. He's like, hey, guys, one thing you may want to think about is, I mean, really what talent acquisition and talent man management are is they're a subset of leadership. And George and I, who'd been looking at this book for one and a half years this close, stepped back and were like, you know what? He's actually right. It, it's a very important part of leadership. Um, but the power of a leader, yes, can you come in and, and turn around a bad organization? Absolutely. And we used a story of a guy named Colonel David Hackworth. Mm. He, he's the most decorated soldier in, in the history of the army. Um, and he was given a task, a very hard task. There, there was an infantry battalion in Vietnam that had taken the most uh, casualties. The enemy was just decimating them. Uh, the name of the unit was the 439th. And they were known as the hard luck because they had fallen on hard luck. And he turned, uh, he came in. He assembled a cast of leaders he had served with before, brought in about six solid leaders that he knew could help them turn this organization around. In, in country, in Vietnam, in a matter of months, those few leaders took a whole battalion of infantry and turned them from the hard luck to the hardcore. So yes, you can, you can improve the, 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 uh, the performance of B and C players. And they became one of the most combat effective uh, battalions in the Vietnam War. Now, you said it, the whole goal is you will always have a talent distribution, a normal distribution of talent. You've got A players, B players, C players, and, and the, uh, the bottom feeders, as we call it. But if my bottom feeders, if my A players, B, B players, and C players have improved the performance of my bottom feeders to a point that the, the average performance of my C and B players is higher than another organization's Bs and C players, I've moved that whole talent distribution to the, uh, to the right, our, our, our median performance is higher than my, my competitors. So even though you can rank talent, the whole goal is to bring everyone along, is to improve the performance of everyone. A tactic that a lot of leaders don't utilize is they have their A players, they know who they are. A lot of leaders don't ask them, hey guys, I need your help. I need you guys because you're all my high performers. I need you to start pouring into the B and the C players and I need you to elevate their game. If we can do that, I'll tell you why. We are going to win at everything we do. And I know that's what you want. That means, hey, that means we're going to be closing more uh, 
sales. That means our revenue is going to grow. And if our revenue is growing, that means you're making larger commissions. I just don't need you making a lot of sales. I need the entire uh, mm -hmm. sales staff making a lot of sales. And if we do that, hey, that means team bonuses will go through the roof and you'll be much happier. And you can buy that, that, that beautiful car for your, your, your husband or your wife. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yeah. You know, give, give, giving everyone an opportunity to be mentors uh, brings the entire organization up, up a level, up a notch. And uh, yeah, I mean, I got to tell you, Mike, thank you so much uh, for being on the Alpha Human podcast. Um, there's, there's so much more that we haven't even uh, gone into with respect to the talent war, which is why it's so rich with insights. And uh, as I said, it's a, it, it really is a practical blueprint and strategy for success when it comes to acquiring talent. So I implore everyone out there that's listening to this, you cannot go wrong by buying the talent war, even if you're not in charge of the, the selection process, the recruitment process. Uh, I implore you buy this book because it's also got, got great lessons for building that culture, for uh, becoming a leader. There's, there's a lot of good stuff in there, Mike. Thank you for writing the book. Thank you for your service, man. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's just great having you on the show. Hey, Lawrence, thank you for having me. Humbled to uh, share the, uh, the airwaves, the interwebs uh, with you. Mm. And uh, look, look, looking forward to, to, to seeing this come out. Absolutely. Where can our audience find out more about you, about uh, your organization and what it is you do? Well, EF Overwatch, if you go to EFOverwatch.com, uh, which EF stands for Echelon Front, but it's just EFOverwatch.com. You can find us. We're a specialized executive search firm, really from gen general management positions all the way to board of directors. Um, even if you need to implement what we talked about in the talent war, we have a talent advisory and a consulting team, which is top notch. I mean, these are some of the best, and I'm so proud of what George Randall has assembled in terms of the A team. Again, we can help you from squaring away your talent acquisition creative process so that you're, you're, you're vetting good talent and getting them through the door, the leadership development and talent management piece, even the marketing, the employee uh, branding that we talked about. I've got a marketing team that can come in and set you guys up for success. Really? Um, and then, yes. And then the, uh, the talent war, you can find that anywhere books are sold. And thank you for talking about chapter 10. You can't, uh, you know, hire or fire your way to success. It's, you go through, I think what, you know, a lot of people have gotten good feedback and then you get to that last chapter, which is my favorite chapter. And it's like, damn, damn, mm. this, 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 the framework is simple, but it isn't easy. It's hard to create a world-class talent acquisition and talent management program. It is. It absolutely is. But at least if you take ownership of that and then, you know, God forbid you actually look at what special operations does and you've, again, you've broken it all out how it's done. I mean, honestly, it's not easy, but how can you, how can you go wrong? You can't lose. If you, if you, you, you have the winning formula, you have the winning blueprint, just implemented. Uh, my God. So again, fantastic stuff. Thank you, Mike. And uh, yeah, just uh, looking forward to, to seeing more of your content. You and George put out some fantastic content. So anyone who's on LinkedIn, uh, connect with these guys, follow these guys, and uh, definitely, definitely have a look at those uh, videos you're putting out. They teach you a lot right there. Lawrence, thank you. 